0: couple of other announcements that are somewhat related. You need to make sure you mark on your calendars for September that on the 20th, am I correct, there will be a work day? Is there a deacon in the house? On the 20th? Okay, good, since uh, September calendar is not in front of me. There will be a work day, and we have a lot of work to do, not only on the grounds outside, clean up, getting ready for the winter, but you also need to uh, be aware of the fact that we have a certain mold problem, which is becoming uh, catastrophic. I think they're going to close down the state of Connecticut due to mold in another week or two, and then everybody will have to evacuate. But until then, we're going to have to do some work here. And, of course, this is a long-range project, and this needs to be a matter of prayer. This old building is uh, really has numbered days. We have patched this thing so many times over the centuries that the patches are now giving way. And two years ago, or three years ago, we embarked on a plan where we laid out a course of action that may take three or four years, it may take ten years, but we were delayed in doing anything due to the fact that we did not have clear title to this property. And since since, uh, there are certain factions in the uh, local historical or hysterical society that might have uh, caused us some problems if we had blinked the wrong way or painted something the wrong color. The first order of business was to get clear title to the property. That was supposed to take a year, but it took two years. About three or four months ago it was finalized and we have clear title to the property. That is why you didn't hear anything said about what our plans were for two years. We had to wait. We couldn't uh, start doing anything until we had that accomplished. Well, that's been accomplished now. So we are going to be gearing up again to make plans to eventually move out of this building and to construct a new building, and that has its own set of problems. So we need to be in prayer for that, and we need to be thinking about uh, getting involved in er- everything that that entails. And part of the overall Plan to build something and move necessarily includes keeping this building together long enough to accomplish a, a a move. So we have to do two things at the same time, and part of it now is just to solve this mole problem. And once all the sheetrock and everything was removed from the building from the uh, Sunday school or prep school rooms downstairs. Once that happened, we we, uh, realized other problems behind there. Well, those will be addressed in terms of a temporary solution for a while, but keep that in prayer. So remember the workday on the 20th and plan on being here for that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength They shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not grow weary, they shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit. Scripture teaches us that every time we sin, whether we know it or whether we don't know it, whether it's intentional or unintentional, at the instant we commit a sin, we're out of fellowship, we lose the filling of the Holy Spirit, and we are no longer walking by means of the Holy Spirit. In order to advance in the spiritual life, we have to recognize that the Christian life is a supernatural life. That's a supernatural life empowered by God the Holy Spirit. Therefore, to get anywhere in the Christian life, we have to be in fellowship, and the procedure for doing that is simple. First John 1:9 says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, both the known and unknown sins. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer recognizing that all of our sin was paid for completely on the cross by Jesus Christ who died there as our substitute. And because all of our sins were paid for, we have eternal salvation and nothing can ever be done to lose that salvation. However, we do sin. We do break fellowship with God. We do need to recover that fellowship and the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can advance in the spiritual life. So we begin each session with a time of silent prayer to emphasize the importance of confession in each believer's life. It's not to be something that's uh, mechanical, but something that is related to your priesthood as you keep your short accounts with God in relationship to your own sin. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have the privilege to gather together today to sit and to study your word, that God the Holy Spirit will enlighten us to the truth of your word, that we will have the courage and the conviction to respond to your word by exchanging the human viewpoint, opinions and ideas and thoughts in our thinking with the absolute truth of your word. Father, we thank you that you have revealed so much to us to give us a global understanding and perception of everything that you have planned for human history, especially the unique work that you are doing in each of us and in the body of Christ during this church age. Father, we do pray that as we study your word today, we would be responsive to that challenge. Above all, Father, we do thank you that we have the freedom, the freedom to sit here today to study your word Freedom that has been purchased for us by the death and the shed blood of so many who have served in our armed services, so many who even today are serving there in places in Europe, in the Middle East, all around the world. Father, we continue to pray for our president. We pray for those who are in positions of leadership, both civil leadership and political leadership, as well as military leadership. We pray that you would give them wisdom and skill, that you would provide the correct information for them, that they can make wise decisions. And above all, we pray that you would continue to keep this nation safe, that we may continue to be a source of sustenance and support for Israel, and that we may continue to send forth missionaries into the world. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we might uh, have our attention brought more on you and on your plan that our thinking may become more theocentric and less anthropocentric and less uh, self-centered. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, and I want to briefly review the Davidic covenant before we get into our study on Psalm 110. Now, we have to make sure that you haven't lost sight of what we're doing. We started off in our study of 1 Corinthians. We went through the first 11 chapters. We came to the 12th chapter, which is the chapter on gifts. Gifts are consistently mistaught in this country. The reason spiritual gifts are mistaught is because we have people who are so filled with arrogance and self-absorption that they're more concerned about what my spiritual gift is rather than understanding the fact that spiritual gifts are designed for service. But it goes beyond simply service in the local church. It goes to the level of what God is doing in the church age through his body, the church. We see this emphasized in the introduction to the brief discussion of spiritual gifts in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, verses 8 through 11, where we're told that because of Christ's ascension, he then gave gifts to men. So there we see this very tantalizing information about the connection of the ascension to the giving of spiritual gifts. As we have explored that connection, we have had to go back into the Old Testament, where we dealt with the quotation, in Psalm 68:17, that is found in Ephesians chapter 4. And then we had to connect that, because in Psalm 68, we saw that the psalm there, and talking about the ascension in its original context, was talking about the ascension of the ark up the Temple Mount. And it was a victory psalm expressing the victory that God had over the enemies of Israel. Paul, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, borrowed that imagery to relate it to the victory of Jesus Christ over Satan in the angelic conflict and his ascension into heaven. That ascension we saw is expressed in numerous passages where we see that he ascended through the heavens and was seated at the right hand of God the Father and placed in authority over all the principalities and powers. That's a technical term which specifically focuses on the angelic powers, the angelic authorities, specifically Satan and the demons. So the point that we derive from all of that is that at this point in history, There is a man sitting at the right hand of God the Father who controls the universe. And that's important. Jesus Christ in his deity was always in authority over the angels. Jesus Christ in his deity always had ultimate power in the universe. But now it is the God-man, Jesus Christ in hypostatic union, undiminished deity, united with true humanity forever. Deity does not sit, only humanity sits. In his deity, Jesus Christ is omnipresent. In his humanity, the physical human resurrection body of the Lord Jesus Christ is in a position seated. The technical term for that is the session. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Now, in order to understand the dynamics of this present session and its relationship to the kingdom, we went through a number of passages in, in Scripture. We saw that the purpose... For the ascension and session is related to the rejection of Jesus Christ at his first advent, when he came and presented himself to his people Israel as the promised Messiah, the promised son of David, the promised king. They rejected him. Because his people rejected him, there was a shift in God's plan. And that shift in God's plan meant that he would be calling out a new people, a new people to whom he would give special privilege and special blessing in the Messianic Kingdom. I'm going to have to bear with me again this morning. I'm still fighting the residual effects of that uh, cold I contracted last week, so we'll muddle through. Anyway, the, the kingdom was postponed. Now, it didn't begin. Key important fact, it did not begin. He has not been given the kingdom. This is one of the reasons that we have taken our time to go through these Old Testament passages. Because there are many, many people throughout the ages who have taught that Jesus Christ in some way began or inaugurated his kingdom and his rule at the first advent. And what we are demonstrating painstakingly from these Old Testament passages is that there is a clear gap prior to the giving of the kingdom to the king a time where he is seen as being passive, not active, in relationship to his reign, when he is seen as being seated at the right hand of God the Father, and there will come a future time when he asks, asks the Father for the kingdom. So the first passage we went to was in Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, we do three conclusions from that section. First of all, we noted that every nation will serve him in the kingdom. Prior to this, the kingdom of Israel was seen as a national Jewish kingdom. But there's something new. There's a new dimension added in Daniel 7 that it would include every nation, every race. There will be someone from every tribe that is in this kingdom. The second thing we noted was that in the verse 14 there's the phrase to him was given which indicated that there would be a time frame existing before the time of the giving of the kingdom which would indi- which would be a time when he did not have dominion did not have that kingdom. And the third thing we noted is that Daniel 7 taught that the establishment of that kingdom would even now be a yet future kingdom and would be accomplished through a truly human founder and leader, and that leader would be a worldwide leader. Now there we saw that he is called the Son of Man, which emphasizes his humanity. From Daniel 7, we went to Psalm 2 last week. In Psalm 2 last week, we saw three things, three key points that we derived from the second psalm. First of all, we saw that this king would be divine. He is declared by God to be his begotten son. Today, I have declared the, the begotten one. As the son of God, he is fully divine. So from Daniel, we see that he is fully human. From Psalm 2, this king will be a divine king. He will be true deity. He is not, it's not imparted deity. It's not... Uh, somehow uh, adopted into deity, he is true deity, which means he is eternal, and he possesses all of the attributes of God the Father. The second thing that we saw in Psalm 2 is that once again there will be a period of time before the king is given the kingdom. There's a period of time before the king was given the kingdom. This indicates that there is not this sort of gradual development of the kingdom. And then the third thing that we brought out of Psalm 2 is that the rule of that king in the future will be a rule characterized by a rule of iron. Now, we went from there. Let's just try to connect the dots a little bit. We went from there to Revelation chapter 2. And in Revelation chapter 2, there is a quote from Psalm 2. And in Revelation two twenty-six and 27, there is the phrase that, He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. This is talking about believers who advance to spiritual maturity. And then there is a quote from Psalm 2, He shall rule them with a rod of iron, they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel. I have also received this from the Father. So what happens is, and where we're going with this, is that there is a period of time between the ascension of Christ, which takes place in Acts 1, and the giving of the kingdom, which doesn't take place until the second coming. It doesn't take place until the second coming of Christ. And there is a time lapse in here. And during this time lapse, there is preparation. There is preparation of rulers, those who will rule and reign with him. Now we're going to pick up some other concepts related to this in, passage, in our passages today. So I want to build this slowly. We're going to first of all look at 2 Samuel 7 which is the establishment of the Davidic Covenant. We're going to move from 2 Samuel 7 to Psalm 89, which is David's reflection on the grace that was given to him in the Davidic Covenant. Then we will look at Psalm 110, which is called the Enthronement Psalm, and is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Last time we looked at Psalm 2, which is, again, a crucial psalm for understanding uh, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to go from Psalm 110 to Acts 2 and Acts 3, where Peter quotes from these psalms in his uh, sermon on the day of Pentecost. And then we will conclude by tying things together in Hebrews chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 1. Now, if we can do that in the next 45 minutes, then we will have accomplished a lot. All of this is to show why the ascension is necessary and what's happening. It's not just so people can have special abilities. We are so self-absorbed, and we don't realize how our thinking has become so psychologized by secular psychology. And I remember when I first really got to thinking about spiritual gifts as a whole sometime in my college years and i read some silly christian magazine and they had a test in there for how you can know your spiritual gifts and you take that test and then you'd score things and work out a little graph and you would see that where where your strengths or weaknesses lay and that isn't any different from any kind of test that you go take through some kind of a guidance counselor at school or through some career counselor in order to try to find out what your gifts and strengths are. And the methodology is identical. But we're talking about spiritual gifts. We're not talking about what you're going to do to earn a living for the rest of your life. And there may be some similarities, but don't let those similarities cause you to think they're somehow the same thing. We have to look at these things differently. God has empowered every believer with certain spiritual gifts, certain abilities, certain strengths, and they are for the function to be used within the local church. They're not so that you can impress anybody else with what you do. They are to serve one another. And there is a purpose in this. There is a short-term purpose, and that is to build up the body of Christ, which is what Jesus is doing during this age in order to prepare the church, the body of Christ and his bride, in to rule and reign at the second coming. So this is a preparatory time, and those gifts are necessary in order to build the body, not just to build it numerically or quantitatively, but to build it qualitatively, to build strength and maturity into that body. So let's go back to Second Samuel, just highlight a couple of things in Second Samuel chapter 7 where we see the promise of God to David that he would establish from his descendants a kingdom. Let's start in about verse, verse 12. God says, When? he's speaking through the prophet Nathan. When your days are fulfilled, and you shall rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. That is, his descendants. It's an establishment of an eternal dynasty. Who will come from your body and will establish his kingdom. Now, the reference in verse 12 and 13 is to his immediate human descendant, Solomon. 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Notice it's not establishing Solomon forever. Solomon was a human being. Solomon is going going to die physically. But it's establishing the throne forever. That is, establishing the dynasty forever. Establishing a lineage that will go forever. Now, I pointed out last time that in order to bring this about, one of two things has to happen. The first is that there will be a perpetual line from David, one generation following upon another generation throughout all of eternity. Or, the second option is that there will be a number of generations that will culminate in an individual who will never die, who in himself is eternal and will never die, and thus the the condition of the covenant is fulfilled in the eternal nature of that one individual. This is what is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Verse 16 reiterates this point where it states, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, we have to go back to a crucial point of interpretation or hermeneutics. How do you interpret the Bible? You interpret the Bible in a plain or normal fashion the same way you interpret anything else in life. The problem that we run into is that a number of people want to go into the Bible, and they want to uh, use sort of a Rorschach test approach to the Bible. You know what a Rorschach test is. That's the inkblot test that they that, uh uh, psycho babble, psycho shaman practitioners use. And whatever you look at, you see this ink blot, oh, that reminds me of a butterfly, so it's a butterfly, or that reminds me of, of uh, somebody cutting somebody's head off, and so you're immediately labeled a psychotic, or you stay up too late at night watching too many horror movies. But you you look at those, and whatever it makes you think of, that's where you go. Well, that's how a lot of people interpret Scripture. They read a verse, and they see a phrase or a word, and they just sort of jump on that word, and they use that as a springboard for jumping into whatever topic or whatever issue is their f- favorite little hobby horse. That is not how you interpret Scripture. You always interpret Scripture first of all in light of the way in, whi- uh, in light of the times in which it was originally written. That means you have to do your studies on the historical cultural backgrounds of that day. That's called isagogics. Secondly, you have to interpret it in light of other Scripture. You have to interpret it in light of other scripture, comparing scripture with scripture, which is part of what we have been doing over the last few weeks And going from Daniel 7 to Psalm 2, Psalm 68, and Second Samuel 7. We'll do that specifically this morning as we compare this section with Psalm 98. This is called the analogy of scripture, comparing scripture with scripture. You don't come in and just arbitrarily... Look at a word throne and say well there's a throne there Obviously Jesus is seated at the right hand of God so that too must be a throne Therefore since this promise is a throne and that's a throne in heaven They must be the same throne Now you may laugh and think that well why would anybody want to do that But that is how a vast majority of Christians down through the ages have interpreted this passage that this throne is fulfilled today in Jesus being seated at the right hand of God the Father. Now let me give you a little history of interpretation. Jesus Christ died on the cross in approximately 33 A.D. The apostolic period, starting in Acts chapter 2 with the... Uh, day of Pentecost, begins in June or late May, early June of that year, in 33 A.D., and extends to approximately 95 A.D. We don't know when the Apostle John died and when he went to be with the Lord, but we'll just say about 95 A.D. This ended a period known as the time of the Apostles. It's followed up to about... Uh, 150 A.D. by a period known as the Apostolic Fathers. I always found that term a little bit confusing because it makes it sound like it's talking about the Apostles, but it's really talking about those who were the disciples of the fa- Fathers, men like Papias who sat under the teaching of the Apostle John, and others who sat under the teaching of the Apostle John. Then this is followed, in turn, by a period generally referred to as the age of the apologists and theologians. And that extended from about 150 to about 300. Now it's during this period of time, from the late 2nd century up to the end of the 3rd century, that you have a major shift take place in the way scripture is interpreted in the early part of the church when you read the apostolic fathers and many of the apologists and theologians apologists are not those who are apologizing for the truth but they are those who are defending the truth apologia the greek word is a technical term for a legal defense And these were men who met the challenge from the pagans. Well, how can you say you believe in one God when you believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? Sounds like three gods to me. So they would formulate technical theological answers to those questions and and many others. So they were called the apologists and theologians. And one of the greatest of these was a man named Irenaeus Irenaeus of Lyon in France, and Irenaeus wrote one of the best defenses of what was called at that time, Kiliasm. Kiliasm from the uh, uh, Greek word, Kilios, meaning 1,000. So in the early church, if you believed in a literal, future, 1,000 year reign of Christ, you were called a Kiliast. Now the Latin word for 1,000 was the word milli. And later they became, because of the dominance of the Roman church, the term uh, millennialists, millennialists was adopted in the late 18th century, early 19th century. And those who believed that Jesus Christ would come back before that 1,000 year kingdom were called pre-millennialists. But this and this theological position was well recognized by Irenaeus and others in the early church and they held to a literal interpretation of scripture that when Revelation chapter 20 speaks of the 1,000 year rule and reign of Jesus Christ that that 1,000 meant 1,000 it didn't mean an indefinite period of time or a perfect period of time or an ideal period of time but it referred to a, uh, a 1,000 year year period of time when it spoke about the fact that this kingdom would be on the earth they knew that that would be on the earth and not somewhere off in heaven that they believed that when God promised a specific piece of real estate to the Jews uh, through Abraham in Genesis 12 Genesis uh, 15 and Genesis 17 that uh, because the Jews had never occupied that piece of real estate to its fullest extent that it must be I yet refer to a yet future time when God in the future would give that real estate to Israel. And that Israel had a right to that land and that that had been promised to them by God in uh, at the time of, of Abraham. And so they interpret these things literally. But in the late 2nd century, you had a man come along by the name of Origen. And uh, Origen... O-R-I-G-E-N. Origin. And Origin was well schooled in Platonic, actually Neoplatonic thought. And we studied that a little bit and you know that one of the emphases in Neoplatonism was uh, on the ideal as opposed to the literal. So he introduced a new form of interpretation an allegorical form of interpretation, and there were, according to Origen, three levels of meaning in Scripture. The first level was a physical meaning, which was analogous to the literal meaning. The second level he identified with the soul, and the third level he identified with the spirit. But once you, the further you get from the literal meaning of the words and the literal grammar of the text, the more you get out there into some sort of subjective uh, speculation, if not just guesswork, uh, with regard to the meaning of the of the text. So, Origin was one of the first to develop a position called Ah, Millennialism. Oh, millennialism is one of those words that was coined by somebody who was must have been very ignorant, because you see the term millennial, based on milli, is a Latin term, and this alpha prefix, which negates it, like our English word un, uh, ah is a Greek prefix, so he t- somebody came along and took a Greek prefix and a Latin root and mixed it together, which shows that they weren't too bright, and... Uh, so millennialism, well, I won't apply that to all amillennialists, but you can draw your own conclusions. Anyway, in amillennialism, there is no literal millennium. There's no literal thousand-year rule and reign. ...of Jesus Christ on the earth. In amillennialism, the land that was promised to Abraham in the Old Testament... ...is no longer a literal piece of real estate located between the Mediterranean Sea and the Euphrates River. It is, a, it is now spiritualized to refer to heaven. And, and the people who inherit the promises of Abraham are now the church the church replaced israel and this we became one of the uh, a theological position that though it is not necessarily so became one of the greatest tools for extreme racism and xenophobia that ever existed because in amillennialism The church replaces Israel, so that Israel is now in their system completely removed from God's plan and purposes in history. And Israel became uh, pictured by many to be the source of all evil in the world because they crucified the Lord. And rather than just pinning the blame on that one generation, they chose this to blame every Jew. And it was the source of tremendous anti-Semitism throughout the Middle Ages and on into the present day. So our Millennialism gave birth to a similar position called Post-Millennialism. And Post-Millennialism... Uh, Jesus Christ comes back at the end of the millennium, but the millennium is not a literal thousand-year reign. It's still the same spiritual form as you have in amillennialism. Now we would say, as premillennialists, that you, we have the Davidic covenant where God promises a son, a dynasty to David. That means it will be a. It must be understood as David understood it: a literal dynasty, a literal physical descendant. And we see that in the beginning part of the fulfillment of this, it's true. That's why you have genealogies in Matthew 1 and in Luke that inform us that Jesus Christ in his humanity through his mother Mary was a direct descendant of David and... He could not be a physical descendant of Joseph because Joseph went down through Jeconiah and the Coniah curse prohibited anyone who was a descendant from Jeconiah to sit on the throne. But through his adopted father or uh, Joseph, he had uh, a legal access to uh, the throne as well. So through both Mary and Joseph, there is descendancy from David, so we see that that part of the co- that part of the promises and the covenant was fulfilled literally. What would give us the right, or give God the right, to suddenly shift and go from a literal covenant to spiritualize it? That would be like you entering into a contract. Let's say you owned a piece of real estate and you sold that real estate to somebody. And under the terms of that contract, see, that's what a covenant is. A covenant is a contract. Let's say you entered into a contract, and this person was to pay you $1,000 a month for a period of, of 30 years for that piece of real estate. And let's say that person came along after about, and you, you had it set up at a 9% interest rate. You did it a few years ago. And let's say that now that person comes along and says, oh, interest rates have dropped to about 6% so I'm only going to pay you 6% interest. Can they do that? No, they can't do that. That would violate the terms of the contract. See, uh, the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the new covenant, are all all contracts between God and man, and you can't go in and change the terms. God doesn't go in and say, okay, at the first advent, we're going to fulfill the terms literally, And and then after that, we're going to switch the terms and fulfill them in a non-literal manner. So let's look at the chart that should be familiar to many of you on God's covenants with Israel. The promises were made for the covenants in the Old Testament, and they are fulfilled in the future. Here's a chart of the ages, the dispensation of the ages. And on the bottom left, you see the formation of Israel, the patriarchs, and Moses. That dotted line on the left refers to the time of Abraham when God established the Abrahamic covenant. In the Abrahamic covenant, there were three basic paragraphs or there were three basic provisions. One was that there would be a land specified specified in that contract, in terms of its borders, that there would be a seed, and it was through that seed, singular, that God would bless all people, and that there would be a blessing that would extend to all nations. So the first part of that, the real estate covenant, the land, is expanded in Deuteronomy, but that real estate covenant is not fulfilled until the future millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ when he returns the Davidic covenant expanded on the seed portion of that, uh, that covenant, so that we learn that the seed will be a descendant of David. And then third, that Jeremiah informs us that there would be a new covenant, and that new covenant was established at the cross, but it isn't fulfilled until the second coming. It is applied to the church, but the covenant itself is between God and Israel. So that is a brief reminder of the structure of the covenants in the Old Testament. Now let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is David's reflection on the Davidic covenant. Let's look down to Psalm 89:19. Just pick up a few points here and then we'll go to Psalm 110. Then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. That tells us that the people, being Israel, that the one who is being spoken of is a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 20, I have found my servant David, with my holy oil I have anointed him, with whom my hand shall be established, my arm shall, and also my arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his face, and plague those who hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name his horn shall be exalted. His horn is a figure, figure of speech, an idiom in Hebrew for his power, his authority, his kingdom. And then in verse 25, God says, Also I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Then verse 27 talks about how what God is going to do for David and the Davidic descendant. Also I will make him my firstborn, this is Jesus Christ, the firstborn, not firstborn in terms of one born among many, but firstborn in terms of the preeminent one, the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep for him forever, my covenant shall stand firm with him. That means that covenant is not broken. Verse 29, his seed also I will make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. So whose throne is this? It's David's throne. Where is David's throne located? It's located in Jerusalem. What is the dominion related to David's throne? See, every kingdom has a, has a king, has a dominion, has a people, and has an extent. So the extent of this kingdom is is the land that God gave to Israel. we skip down to verse 36. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Now what happened in allegorical interpretation is all of these throne terms were said to be identical. However, we have to distinguish thrones. There is clearly the throne of God the Father in heaven. There is the throne of David. They are not the same. The throne of God is located in heaven. The throne of David is located on the earth. The throne of God is related to His sovereign rule over the human race. The throne of David is related to the rule of a king over the nation Israel. The throne of David, even in the Millennial Kingdom, the Davidic throne is not over the Gentiles. The Messianic throne is over the Gentiles, but the throne of David is not over the Gentiles. It is, it is as the Son of David, that title relates to Jesus Christ's uh, descendancy from David and rulership over the Jews. His title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, relates to his rulership over all the people. Now with that background let's go to Psalm one hundred and ten Psalm one hundred and ten is one of the most quoted psalms in the new in the new testament uh, It's quoted seven times in hebrews it's quoted in hebrews one three and thirteen it's quoted in psalm i mean in hebrews five six it's quoted in hebrews six twenty hebrews seven seventeen uh, twenty one and twenty eight in hebrews twelve two nine times nine times have a typo there quoted nine times in hebrews it's also quoted in matthew twenty two forty four mark twelve thirty six luke twenty forty two and forty three acts two thirty four and thirty five so That is at least 13 times this psalm is quoted in the New Testament. The emphasis in Psalm 10 is that this king... Now remember, what we've established here, I want you to be very methodical in this. First of all, we saw that the coming ruler would be the Son of Man, emphasizing humanity. Second, we saw that he is the Son of God, emphasizing deity. Third, we've seen that he is the son of David, emphasizing his Jewishness. And now we're going to see that this future king is not only a, is not only royalty, but he is also a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. A priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So Psalm 110 is a revelation that the messianic king fulfills the imagery and the typology of a pre-Israelite, a Gentile office of king-priest. So look at Psalm 110. Psalm 110 begins a psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Now David is writing this, and David is the highest authority in Israel. There is no one over David, there is no authority over David. So who can David be talking about here when he says, my Lord? when he refers to my lord he's referring to somebody over him well the only one over a the theocratic king of israel was god so my lord has to refer to deity but he says here that the lord that is yahweh notice in your bibles that that should be capitalized indicating that that is speaking to uh, speaking of yahweh the covenant god of israel yahweh said to my lord so it is it indicates Deity of both persons. It's, on that basis, Jesus Christ quotes it in the Gospels in order to substantiate his own deity. So the Lord says to my Lord, that is, God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand. Sit is our t- subject, it's the session. Sit at my right hand. Right hand is a position of prestige, honor, and glory. When Jesus Christ ascended to the Father, the Father honored him and glorified him by putting him in the highest position in all of the universe. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That indicates that he is seated at this time, this session, occurs until God the Father does does something. He is accomplishing something during this period of time in human history. There will be a time when God the Son will ask for the nations as His inheritance in Psalm 2 verses uh, 6 and following. But in the meantime, He is in a position where He is seated and He is not, He is not ruling. Look down to verse 4. Verse 4 we read, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now who was Melchizedek? Melchizedek was a Gentile who lived at the time of Abraham in Jerusalem. He is mentioned in Genesis chapter 14 verses 18 through 20. But his priesthood is distinct from the Jewish Aaronic priesthood. His priesthood was a Gentile priesthood that pre-existed Abraham. This makes this a universal priesthood, whereas the Aaronic priesthood, those in Israel who were descendants of Aaron in the tribe of Levi, was a racial priesthood and a priesthood based on the Mosaic covenant, which was a temporary covenant whereas the priesthood for Melchizedek was a priesthood that is a universal priesthood. Now this introduces an interesting feature that will take place eventually when Jesus Christ returns, and that is that both political and religious authority will be united in one person, in the person of that priest king. The During the... Uh, time prior to Abraham you had something similar take place and this is uh, later going to be uh, separated. It's identified together under the theocratic kingship at the beginning of the theocracy uh, when God is seen as the political leader and he has served by the priest, and it is distinguished in this age, there must be a distinction between religious authority and political authority. Whenever you have anyone trying to unite political authority and religious authority, there is going to be trouble because political authority always gobbles up religious authority and seeks to act as God. Now that is not what's been happening in Alabama with this uh Display of the Ten Commandments. This is just another example, another egregious example in the current history of our nation where people are seeking to uh, remove themselves completely from any kind of external authority. And the presence of The Ten Commandments just sitting there as mute testimony to the fact that there is a God who is the source of all right and wrong is such a challenge to the liberal element in this society that they can't stand it. It's just fine for them to have lesbian open mouth kissing on MTV award programs, but by God, somebody's going to be destroyed and people are going to be harmed by the presence of the Ten Commandments in... Uh, the Supreme Court building of Alabama. But see, the real issue here is not a religious issue. The real issue here is not separation of church and state. The issue is more fundamental. It's a constitutional issue, and it has to do with who uh, who has authority in this area. Is it the state, local state, by that I mean one of the 50 states in the Union, or is it the federal government? And it is specifically stated in the Constitution that this authority does not lie with the federal government. And so that's why this is a constitutional crisis. And if you believe the liberal news media who don't know history, a bunch of idiots, that this is about religion, or this is really about the Ten Commandments, or this is about uh, any of those things, then you're just as ignorant of history and you've been duped by all these liberals for a long time. It is about the Constitution and who has authority here. We do not live in a, in a governmental system where all power goes to the federal government. We have a division of authority and there are specifically delegated powers to the states. And anything that is not specifically stated to be... Uh, given to the federal government is given to the states. And the more this breaks down, the more you have the loss of personal freedoms and individual freedoms because the federal government grows more and more powerful. So this is what the real issue is. It is not about religion. It is not about the separation of church and state, which doesn't occur in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. The, in fact, the Bill of Rights existed to say that the federal government could not, uh, could not establish a religion. That meant that the federal government was forbidden uh, from making the state religion, uh, Uh, Episcopalianism or Congregationalism or Methodism or uh, Baptist denomination or Roman Catholic it did not even prevent the states from establishing uh, religion because at that time uh, the states had established religions in Connecticut the established state supported by that I mean state lower case s state supported religion in Connecticut was Congregationalism that's why we have this church Because there were a few people who broke away from the Congregational Church when they came to Baptist convictions. And they, uh, starting in about 1798 with the first ones who were baptized over here in Amos Lake through about 1811 when they finally established this church as Preston City Baptist Church, that provided the background. But it wasn't until the 1820s that they disestablished the congregational denomination from state support. So if you lived in Connecticut in uh, 1815, your taxes went to pay the salary of congregational ministers. And that was not viewed as being unconstitutional by the people who wrote the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. They said that the federal government was forbidden from establishing a religion. It didn't say anything about the states. But ever since then, there has been this gradual erosion of state freedoms and state authority, as well as individual freedoms and individual authority, and the federal government just keeps sucking it up. And so that is the real problem that's going on today. But the problem is, as we see when you look in the Old Testament, is that all government in this age is going to fall apart. It always moves towards tyranny, Uh, while it always moves in one of two directions. One direction is anarchy and the other is in tyranny. And we saw that from our study of Judges, and if you weren't here then, or if you're listening to tapes and you haven't heard that series, then you need to listen to that because it's one of the greatest social commentaries uh, written under inspiration of the Holy Spirit that's ever been done. In that social commentary, it critiques the fact that the, under democracy, see, this country was never founded to be a democracy. The founding fathers hated democracy. The founding fathers knew that if ultimate authority was placed in the people, and the people are sinners, then it's going to fall apart. And democracy came out of Greek culture. The concept of a republic came out of Roman culture. And in the 18th century, it was the ideal at the education system in the colonies at that time was Roman culture. So they wanted to establish a republic, a representative republic. But with the influence of the Enlightenment and various other cultural factors in the early 19th century, the, sh- the shift uh, in education went to Greece and democracy, and Athens was the only democracy that's ever existed, and it fell apart. Because, uh, as Judges showed, when people do what's right in their own eyes, it always leads to evil. So Judges is a commentary that democracy fails. It's also a commentary that human kingship fails. You see that throughout Samuel and Kings. Human kingship is always going to fail because human kings are sinners. They are totally depraved. So there's no perfect economic system. There's no perfect political system because all political systems, all economic systems, are all all operate with fallen creatures. That's why David recognized that in order for there to be a perfect society and a perfect kingdom, the leader of that kingdom had to be perfect had to be the God-man, had to be undiminished deity, as well as true humanity. And not only is he true humanity, but he also functions as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is not... we don't know a lot of information about Melchizedek, and you always have people come along with the most outlandish uh, ideas about who Melchizedek was. All Melchizedek was was a Gentile priest king representing the old order that existed between Noah and Abraham, and no information is given about him. Although ancient Jewish legend suggests that he was a Shem, the son of Noah, and if you chart out the ages of, uh, of Shem, Shem didn't die. Uh, Shem was had not died by the time of Abraham. In fact. Yeah, lived Abraham. So it's very possible that Melchizedek could have been Shem, but we can't be dogmatic on that particular point. So what we see then, just in conclusion, wrapping this up, is that our imagery from Daniel 7, Psalm 2, Psalm 110, all suggests this future king who's the God-man. Now turn with me to the New Testament, and let's look briefly at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse Thirty and thirty-four. Now, as I said earlier, as I said earlier, the problem that we've had in church history is this problem of interpretation, the problem of literal interpretation versus allegorical interpretation. When Origen came in and brought in this allegorical interpretation, it was then picked up by a very famous theologian by the name of Augustine. And Augustine lived in the late 4th century AD. The late 4th uh, century AD. And Augustine held to a an allegorical view. He started off being Achilles. He believed in a literal... Millennium, but the pre of that day got this idea that the millennium was some sort of, uh, physical, uh, domain, much like this, uh, concept of paradise that the Muslims have, and that it was, it, it was too, uh, there was, there was all this Uh, physical sensuality to it, and that offended Augustine. So rather than sticking with the text, he let the distortion of the text by premillennialists of his day uh, cause him to react, and he brought in an allegorical interpretation. Now from roughly 400 A.D. all the way to about 1580. Now that's a real rough date. Amillennialism reigns because Augustinian theology dominates the Roman Catholic Church and spiritualized, uh, allegorized interpretation reigns. It's not till after the Reformation. The Reformation calls for a return to literal hermeneutics, literal interpretation. And they applied it at first only to salvation. Why? Because they were getting martyred for salvation. They didn't have the time to develop. A consistent, literal interpretation of every branch of theology. It took about a generation, and by the late 16th century, premillennialism begins to uh, dominate until by the mid-1600s, when you get over here to the colonies just north of here in Massachusetts, and the Puritans and Congregationalists in the 16th century, or in the 17th century, mid sixteen hundreds, were all premillennialists except for John Cotton, who came over from England. All the rest here in the U.S. were pre-mills. So you see the restoration of of premillennialism in America. But in all millennialism, how are they interpreting the throne of David? It's spiritualized. It's in heaven. Right? Okay, let's look at Acts two briefly. Acts two verse thirty. Peter is speaking, and Peter is going to uh quote here from uh, Psalm 132 and he says therefore uh, let's pick up the context verse 29 men and brethren let me speak freely to you of the patriarch of David that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day, therefore being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Messiah to sit on his throne. Now we've just seen in Daniel 7 and in De- uh, Psalm 89 that this throne is David's throne. However, our millennialists have cons- always taken this to be the throne of God. Then verse 31, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God. Where does that come from? That's Psalm 110. Exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. What does he receive at the right hand of God? The promise of the Spirit. The right hand of God is not the throne of David. It's the right hand of God. Now what's happened today is you've had the development of a new, uh, idea, and that is that, be, that borrows from amillennialism, that at the, at the first coming, Jesus inaugurates the kingdom, but it gradually comes into the second coming. This is called the already not yet view. It's already here, but not yet fully. Okay, and that has been picked up by a group from Dallas Seminary who coined the term for themselves progressive dispensationalists because you see the kingdom is progressively coming in. But it's not progressive and it's really not dispensational because you see what they're doing is the same thing the Amils have done is they come in and they interpret the throne of David to be the throne of God. They allegorize the interpretation here. And what happens when you do this is you miss the significance of what Jesus Christ is doing during his session in this age. And I told you we wouldn't make it, and we didn't. So we're going to have to come back next time and go into Hebrews to see how this pulls everything together in terms of the priestly work of Jesus Christ during this age, during the session, and what he is doing for the church. But we we had to go take this time. This is the battlefield. Psalm 110 in Acts 2 and Acts 3, and we'll come back and hit it again next time, is the sort of almost a crux interpretive issue between uh, covenant theology and its amillennial view of of, of, hist- of history and the amillennialism of Roman Catholic in fact the amillennialism of all replacement theology versus dispensational Premillennialism, and I mean traditional dispensational premillennialism. And where we're going with this is to understand that it's only on the basis of a consistently worked out premill dispensationalism that we can understand what an incredible thing we have in terms of our present priesthood in terms of the spiritual gifts, in terms of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the temple he creates in us for the indwelling Christ, what he is doing and Jesus Christ is doing in us through spiritual gifts in preparation for the future kingdom. It all comes together in this, and it's a great lesson to show why doctrine is important and what happens when you start changing things around, and why it is that, that... in almost any given systematic theology you approach, it hardly says anything about the ascension and session other than it is, simply because they do, they, without being dispensational and pre-mill, they can't ever understand why it is so important. And the result is you end up with a somewhat truncated and anemic view of the spiritual life of the church age and spiritual gifts. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity to study the this great scope of your plan and purpose in human history and how you are working in the church today and in each believer in the church and what you are doing in preparing us to rule and reign with you in the future. Father, we thank you that we have such a great salvation that it was fully accomplished for us on the cross. There, Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, so that every single sin in human history was completely and totally paid for on the cross. The issue there is not sin. The issue is Christ. Perhaps you're here this morning. You've never trusted Christ as your Savior. You're unsure or uncertain of your eternal destiny. This is your opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none that doeth righteous, no, not one. And yet, to have salvation, we must have righteousness. Scripture says that if we put our faith in Christ, then God gives to us, He imputes to us, the perfect righteousness of Christ. It's His righteousness that's the basis of salvation, not our righteousness. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saves us. Why? Because we possess the perfect righteousness of Christ. So right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny. All you need to do is believe Jesus Christ died as your substitute on the cross. It's simple. It's not difficult. Yet so many people make it simple and difficult because in arrogance they want to do something to impress God. Yet the only thing in human history that impresses God is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.